3: Welcome to Season 2, Episode 18 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Listener caution is advised, as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. Olivia was woken up around 3.30am on December 30th, 1999 by the sound of something crashing to the ground. She prodded her husband awake. She was sure that somebody was in the house. She jumped out of bed and ran to lock the bedroom door. George, her husband, was wide awake now. He got up, put on his boots before manoeuvring past his wife and making his way down the dark staircase. When he reached the bottom floor, he felt the cold December air coming in through a broken window. Amongst the shattered glass was a broken piece of a statue of St. Michael that was usually kept in the conservatory. He went to another room and smelt cigarette smoke in the air. Someone was in the house. He decided to return to his wife upstairs, but by this time she made her way to the living room which adjoined to their bedroom. She was calling for help they could hear someone downstairs walking on the broken glass. What was going to happen to them, and who exactly was in their house? The man crunching through the glass heading upstairs was Michael Abram. The 33-year-old had travelled from Liverpool to Henley-on-Thames in Oxfordshire with the sole purpose of killing George. Michael suffered from schizophrenia. His treatment had been infrequent and had taken its toll. He had an unremarkable childhood and was raised by parents Linda, a factory worker, and Raymond, a labourer. Michael was the older sibling to a younger brother and sister, and the family lived in a three-bedroom council house in Stockbridge Village. As a teenager, he had his first serious relationship with a girl he met at school, Jeanette Freeman. He was an average student and left school at 16 with a couple of GCSEs and 3O levels. Within two years of dating Jeanette, they found out she was expecting a baby. Their parents agreed that they were too young to move in together, so they both remained with their respective parents. At first Michael got a job working with computers, but then he obtained a better paid position selling advertising space in telesales. In 1987, when he was 21, Michael moved into a flat with his girlfriend and their three-year-old. Two years later, the couple would have a second child, and it was then things began to unravel. Michael felt under pressure in his job, so looked for ways to relax. He started smoking cannabis, which eventually progressed to injecting heroin. His relationship with Jeanette deteriorated. Fights between the couple turned violent but it would be a couple of years before Michael would visit a psychiatrist in Western Hospital in Merseyside to seek help. He was diagnosed as psychotic with paranoid delusions. Unfortunately, he wasn't seen regularly. In fact, he wasn't seen again until a year later in 1991. By now, the relationship with Jeanette had dissolved, and Michael had moved to a small property on the 10th floor of a high-rise block of flats called Walfall Heights. His life continued on a downward spiral. He left his job and started pressuring his family for money to fund his drug habit. He told them it was the only way he could escape his spooks. His neighbours found him strange and nicknamed him Sheephead and General Custer apparently due to his shoulder-length pale blonde wavy hair. His odd manner and unconventional appearance made him stand out. One neighbour later said, He's a bit of a nutter and not a great mixer. Michael's delusions became more overwhelming. He became fixated on the band Oasis and was positive the song Wonderwall was about a wall in his flat. He had read an interview with Oasis in the paper about drugs and alcohol, believing that the Gallagher brothers had used the interview to communicate with him directly. He was convinced the singer Madonna could read his mind. It was only in 1996 when Michael Abram was finally seen regularly by mental health professionals. They thought that his behaviour and delusions were linked to his drug addiction. His declining mental health saw him admitted to hospital in 1997, but he was discharged 11 days later. His mother said her son came to her house in tears and said, nobody can help me. A tape cassette walkman was his constant companion. He played music to drown out the voices in his head. He was well known in town for standing outside a local branch of HMV singing loudly. It was a familiar sight seeing him pacing up and down with his headphones in. Michael borrowed his mum's Beatles cassettes and became transfixed. As with Oasis, the Beatles became a fixture of his paranoid delusions. He was convinced he was the fifth Beatle. In 1998, a brief ray of hope came when he visited a doctor and was diagnosed as schizophrenic so he might receive the proper treatment to aid in his rehabilitation. But sadly Michael discharged himself and when he returned in April, a different doctor reverted back to the previous conclusion that Michael's symptoms were a product of his drug abuse. His mother Linda had read about schizophrenia after his diagnosis and was almost sure that that's what her son was suffering from. She communicated with the last doctor Michael had seen, but he promptly branded Linda and Michael a nuisance. Michael's behaviour became progressively more bizarre as his neighbours saw him naked on his balcony shouting to passers-by that he was going to jump off. On August 11th 1999 there was a solar eclipse. It triggered Michael and it became another one of his obsessions. He was certain he was possessed by the Phantom Menace, figure that he believed was predicted by Nostradamus. He had an unshakable belief that his role on Earth was chosen by God to banish drugs from the world. So confident in his convictions, he stopped using heroin and began taking methadone. Despite managing to successfully battle his drug addiction, Michael's mental health was deteriorating fast. After removing all the furniture from his flat, he sat on an upturned flowerpot listening to music for hours on end. His hallucinations were petrifying. Michael believed that a witch and a man in black inhabited his flat. After venturing outside, he would carry out acts of criminal damage. Michael was arrested three times over the course of just a few days. At one point, he was having a conversation with his mother. It suddenly occurred to him, as he clicked his fingers, that former Beatle Paul McCartney was a witch and he believed his bandmate, George Harrison, was linked to the phantom menace he saw in his delusions. One of the reasons Michael was arrested was for causing criminal damage to a Beatles advertising billboard in Liverpool. By his third arrest, the police were aware Michael Abram was suffering from mental health issues, and it was clear the police station was not the right place for him, so they took him to Whiston Hospital. However, Michael was ejected without treatment during the middle of the night, after a confrontation with a male nurse on November 16th, 1999, just six weeks before he left Liverpool and headed towards George Harrison's home. The last time Michael was seen before the break-in was in a pub called the Bow and Arrow in Highton, not far from his flat. A pub regular later said that Michael looked calm, I saw him leave about 6pm and heard him say, I've got things to do. The patron described seeing him often. I've seen him in the pub sitting on his own for hours with a glass of beer in a trance-like state like he was meditating. It is not clear how Michael made the nearly 190 mile trip because he didn't drive nor have access to a car. When he arrived at Henley-on-Thames on December 29th, He began to sing and shout at the top of his lungs in the town square, hoping to provoke a rebellion against the former beetle. He then went into a church where Reverend David Buskill was in the middle of performing a service. Michael shouted, Do you know where the squire lives? Thrown off guard, the clergyman at first thought he was talking about God. Then, after some further conversation with the stranger, the Reverend eventually realized Michael was referring to George Harrison michael was given directions and headed off to george harrison's 34 acre estate
2: life is full of what-ifs some awesome like what if ai could fold your laundry and some well less awesome like what if you have unexpected medical costs united healthcare can help get you covered with health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment.
4: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
2: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
3: Michael arrived at the border of the property, pulling himself up onto the wall by his fingertips and peered inside. He left the estate but returned at 3am carrying a blue holdall. He scaled a section of the wall that was absent of any razor wire. It's not known whether it was intentional or whether it was in haste, but Michael left the blue all as it was found the next day by a photographer. The security lights, installed a decade before, didn't turn on to alert security staff of Michael's presence. The intruder was shielded from passers-by by the dense hedges surrounding the walls. For whatever reason, the stars had aligned for Michael Abram that night. He was on a mission to end the life of George Harrison, and so far he was unhindered. When it was later revealed in the press how easily Michael Abram managed to gain access to the estate, some locals were not surprised. A few teenagers were known to climb the perimeter to get a look at the former Beatles' home. One of the teenagers told reporters, He spent millions on the gardens. They have to be seen to be believed. Once safely on the other side, Michael had a half-mile walk to the mock Gothic mansion. He smashed a window in both the kitchen and the conservatory. In turn, the noise awoke George and Olivia Harrison. By the time Michael had got to the gallery outside the Harrison's bedroom, Olivia had called the housekeeper, who lived on the estate, and she alerted the authorities. They could hear the assailant in their house. In a split second, George decided to leave the room to protect his wife and mother-in-law, who was also staying at the home. As he emerged from the bedroom, a man, six foot tall with long blonde wavy hair, came running up the stairs. He was armed with a knife in one hand and a spear that was taken from a statue in the other. Michael stopped still in the centre of the room when he locked eyes with the person he was there to kill. He began shouting and in response George Harrison shouted back, Harry Krishna, Harry Krishna and Michael charged towards him. The two fought with George trying to get the knife out of his attacker's hands but failed to do so. The attacker began to stab the musician in the torso. In an attempt to stop the assault on her husband, Olivia struck Michael on the back with a brass poker, but Michael kept lifting his arm in the air and thrusting the knife down into George's chest. Michael then got up and grabbed Olivia by the throat. Miraculously, George managed to get up and the Harrisons fought their attacker. Olivia struck Michael over the head with the table lamp. Michael dropped the knife but then swung the lamp by the flex, hitting and cutting Olivia's forehead. All three, bloody and exhausted, collapsed onto some meditation cushions that were scattered on the floor, and George managed to subdue the attacker until the police arrived. After being handcuffed, Michael Abram said quietly to himself, I did it. I did it. Paramedics arrived 20 minutes later. And George was put on two saline drips to stabilise his blood pressure. He had been stabbed ten times. A stab wound had missed his heart by inches, and he was told he was lucky to be alive. George and Olivia were rushed to the Royal Berkshire Hospital, and George received treatment for a collapsed lung and significant chest wounds. By lunchtime of that day, he was moved to a specialist thorac unit at Harefield Heart Hospital as a precaution. Thankfully, the six-inch blade had missed his major organs, and his condition had improved significantly by the late afternoon. Olivia was treated for minor cuts and bruises. Their son Danny, who was 21 at the time, joined his mother at his father's bedside. Mark Gritton, chief executive of the Royal Berkshire Hospital Trust, spoke in a press conference about the Harrison's condition.
0: We admitted this morning at about five o'clock. Mrs. Harrison
3: suffered some superficial
0: injury, and while she's, there's a little bit of pain and discomfort, she's been all right, and she, she was not admitted. However, she's been by the bedside of Mr. Harrison. Mr. Harrison also suffered some superficial injury, and there was a stab wound to his chest. Now, that was treated conventionally by putting a chest drain in, um, and he's stable. Since he's been in a in a hospital bed, he's been getting much better, and he's comfortable. Um, generally, they're very happy, and as I said a moment ago, uh, concerned to let you know and the world know that they are um, recovering well and comfortable.
3: To get some sleep. A psychiatrist assessed Michael Abram at the station and deemed him unfit to undergo police interrogation. During this time, Michael's mother Linda found out when a local reporter knocked on a door looking for a reaction. She had seen the basic detail on the Teletext news about the attempted murder, but she wasn't aware her son was the suspect. Merseyside detectives were almost immediately at Michael's flat, collecting items of interest to pass on to the Thames Valley Police, who are building evidence in the case against him. Detective Chief Inspector Ewan Reid of the Thames Valley Police had spoken to a crowd of reporters on December 30th. Uh,
1: my own view at present, and it is dangerous for me, particularly dangerous for me to speculate, my own view is that it isn't a burglary that went wrong, that he probably came here on purpose, but uh, over the next few days we will be painstakingly uh, picking pieces together and looking at this individual's background to see what might have motivated this. Does that mean perhaps
0: we're talking about an obsessive fan?
1: Poss- possibly. Um, who, who knows? It could be a number of things. could be an obsessive fan, could be somebody who simply didn't like him. Uh, I don't know. Can you tell us about the struggle how far he got into the house? I don't want to talk too much about the detail there, other than the struggle did take place inside the house. Um, and most of the struggle, I think, took place upstairs.
3: He was asked how the attacker gained entry into the Harrisons' home.
1: It may turn out, and I emphasise it, it may turn out this chap was hell-bent on getting into the grounds and very often people who are hell-bent on doing things like this will succeed. But he woke up the Harrisons uh, and and thank goodness he woke them up because he was then...
3: The trial began at Oxford Crown Court on Tuesday, November 14th, 2000. Michael Abrams' appearance had changed since the incident. He had cropped his unkempt hair. He appeared calm and looked smart in a pinstripe suit and pink tie. On the first day of the trial, it was made clear it was up to the jury to decide if Michael Abrams' plea that he was not guilty of attempting to kill George Harrison and his wife by reason of insanity should be accepted. The court was presented with a written statement from George Harrison, who did not attend the trial in person. Olivia and her son were in the courtroom. The statement from George was read aloud. It said, He stopped in the center of the room on seeing me, then started to shout and scream. He was hysterical, frightening in his manner. He was saying something like, You get down here. At this point, he was on top of me and stabbing down towards the top part of my body with a knife. I couldn't get the better of him and he was on top of me at this point. I felt exhausted and felt the strength drain from me. I vividly remember a deliberate thrust of the knife into my chest and immediately felt my chest deflate and felt blood into my mouth. I believed I had been fatally stabbed. During the trial, George's wife Olivia Harrison took to the stand. She said, I've never seen my husband look like that. I raised my hand and hit the man on the back of the head as many times as I could, as hard as I could. My husband said, get him, get him. There was blood on the walls, blood on my hands, and I realised that we were going to be murdered, and this man was succeeding in murdering us, and there was absolutely nobody else there to help. During the second day of the trial, Dr. Philip Joseph, a psychiatrist who assessed Michael Abram, was asked to submit his evaluation. The psychiatrist explained that at the time of the attack Michael was mentally ill and said he was suffering from such a defect of reason that he did not believe it was wrong. He believed his actions were justified. The actions were ordained by God, justified by the Bible and he needed to kill George Harrison because he was possessed by George Harrison. Dr. Philip Joseph added, His life was falling apart. He was living in squalor. He was looking for a meaning to his life but he was preoccupied by his mental illness. He was trying to make sense of what was going on in his mind. He began to realise that the person behind this was George Harrison, realised that he was the Phantom Menace. During Michael's assessments, it was identified that he believed George Harrison had apparently encouraged his ex-partner to steal £80,000 from a drug dealer. Michael had been listening to Got My Mind Set On You, a George Harrison's song which contains the lyrics, It's Gonna Take Money. He had the firm belief that George Harrison was an alien and the Beatles were witches flying on broomsticks from hell. In the lead up to the attack, the psychiatrist explained that Michael's condition had been escalating. The court had been told in a statement by George Harrison that he shouted, Harry Krishna, Harry Krishna. Upon hearing this, Michael Abram believed that George was cursing in the devil's tongue. Michael had explained to Dr. Philip Joseph that if George Harrison had talked normally to him at this point, he would not have gone through with the attack. The doctor told the court that Michael attacked George Harrison to make it all stop. After the attack, Michael Abram regretted his actions and displayed a significant amount of remorse when he was being assessed by a psychiatrist. He even wanted to write a letter to the Harrison family to apologise. The court also heard from another psychiatrist, Dr Jenny McCarthy. The psychiatrist believed that Michael suffered from mental health issues, especially schizophrenia, which doctors had failed to diagnose so went untreated for a number of years. She explained to the court that Michael could be rehabilitated and shouldn't be put away in a mental health facility indefinitely. He had responded well to treatment and was not a naturally aggressive person. After all the evidence was presented, the jury took just over one hour to return a verdict. As he stood in the dock, Michael Abram was nervous and pale as the verdict of not guilty by reason of insanity was read aloud. Describing the incident as a horrifying attack, the judge, Mr. Justice Astill, ordered that Michael be sent to a secure mental health facility without restriction of time. Outside the courtroom, Danny Harrison spoke to the press on behalf of his parents.
1: We're truly grateful for the tremendous support we've received from friends and from the very many members of the public whom we don't know personally, but who thought of us and sent us good wishes and letters. We're also grateful to the police, the ambulance and hospital services for their professional work on the night and for helping us through those early
3: hours. Michael Abrams' mother Linda also spoke to the BBC and hoped the Harrisons would be able to forgive Michael for his actions. She said he was a very ill man last year. Under normal circumstances, he would never do anything like this. He is a lovely lad. Linda Abram was certain that her son had been let down by doctors over the last nine years. An inquiry was commissioned by St Helens and Nosley Health Authority to understand the failures to diagnose and treat Michael Abram for schizophrenia before he attempted to kill George Harrison. In a section of the report, a doctor described an appointment he had with Michael in February 1999. Michael was anxious and angry, because despite his pleas for assistance, no one believed he had mental health issues. Six months later, his mother Linda contacted the GP to express concern about his ever more erratic behaviour, but again no action was taken. Michael's mother had been vocal in the press about her frustrations and spoke about her son's condition prior to the attack.
2: The state he was in last year, uh, no help whatsoever from anyone. Um, I mean, all I can describe Michael as last year was demented. He was literally demented. I used to cry for him. Uh, Terrible to watch.
3: Chief Executive of the Authority Alan Duran admitted there were failings in the treatment offered to Michael Abram, though lessons had been learned. We wish in public to say clearly we are sorry, he said. Jeff Roberts, chairman of the inquiry panel, stressed considerable improvements had been made since the inquiry. He said, I am satisfied that the building bricks are now in place to ensure that the problems encountered in the care and treatment of Michael Abram are unlikely to occur in future. I think I can confidently say that lessons have been learned. The chairman added that as no contact was made with Michael or his family, he found it to be an extraordinary failure of consideration by a public service. Of the apology was accepted by Linda Abram. She was disappointed in the findings as she believed those responsible for Michael's lack of treatment should have been identified and named in the report. She stated, If they had listened to me and diagnosed Michael's illness, he would have been sectioned and could never have attacked anyone. Her son responded to the apology from the Scott Clinic in Merseyside where he was being treated and he also believed that those individuals responsible should have been identified. Unless they are put on the spot, how can we be sure they won't make the same mistakes again, he said. On Thursday, July 4th, 2002, it was reported that a tribunal-ruled Michael Abram had responded well to treatment and he was fit to be released from the Scott Clinic in Rainhill, Merseyside. He was released on conditional discharge and would be living in a structured care environment. Michael Abram publicly apologised for the attack. He said if I could turn back the clock I would give anything not to have done what I did. But I have come to realise that I was very ill at the time, really not in control. People may find it hard to accept, but with the help of medication I'm on, I'm sure I can lead a normal life. I just want to be an ordinary bloke. He added... I can only hope the Harrison family might somehow find it in their hearts to accept my apologies. I'm ashamed of what I did and deeply sorry it happened. My illness was missed by almost all the doctors and nurses until I was turned out of a hospital while I was still very ill. If only the doctors had correctly identified my illness, it could have been avoided. Michael's solicitor, Peter Edwards, said the decision to release his client was another step in Michael's rehabilitation. He said, what people have to realise is that this is not the Michael that attacked George Harrison. This is the real Michael. George Harrison's family were furious that Michael Abram had been released and felt they were let down by the system for not being notified sooner. In a statement, Olivia Harrison said, The first we heard about this was today after the decision was taken. No one had the courtesy to tell us in advance that there had been an application for his discharge, let alone a date set for a hearing. We were thus given no opportunity whatsoever to have our say, or to review any medical evidence and instruct our own expert. We can never forget how brutally close Abram came to killing dear George and myself, nor the trauma inflicted on our son and family. We wish Mr. Abram no ill but to be presented with this as a fact after the event is deeply upsetting and insulting and we feel let down by the system. It remains the case in this country that the victim simply has no voice. The vicious attack robbed George of the vital energy he needed at that time to maintain his health. Sadly, he is no longer here, but we know what his reaction would have been to this news. A mixture of anger and dismay. After Michael Abrams' release, multiple mental health charities stepped forward and provided explanations to help the public to understand the key steps taken by authorities. Mind, a mental health charity, stated that a number of independent experts would have been consulted and careful consideration would have been taken before Michael's release. The charity issued a statement in which they said people can recover from even the most severe mental health problems with the correct treatment and support. Michael Abrams has now been assessed as ready to return to the community. With the right level of continued care, which means suitable accommodation and health services and support, the public shouldn't assume that history will automatically repeat itself. So where are we now? As coincidence would have it, George and Olivia had experienced a separate break-in at their residence in Hawaii a few days before George and his wife were attacked. On December 23, 1999, 27-year-old Kristen Kellier entered through the sliding glass doors of the home, expecting the former Beatle to be there. She had been obsessed with George, believing they shared a psychic connection. Realising the Harrisons weren't occupying this property over the Christmas period, Kristen made herself at home, cooking a pizza from the freezer and grabbing a root beer. She then called her mother before starting to do the laundry. Her presence in the house alerted the authorities and she was taken into custody. She was released on bail for $1,500 and in April 2000 she was found guilty of burglary and sentenced to four months in prison. Tragically, six years after her release, Kristen Kellyer was found dead in a car in California next to Stanley Everett Merchant in what was thought to be a murder-suicide. George Harrison had been fighting cancer two years before Michael Abram attacked him. After the attempt on his life, he underwent surgery to remove a cancerous growth from one of his lungs and also received treatment for a brain tumour. He remained out of the public eye until he passed away due to cancer on November 29, 2001. His family took his ashes to India to scatter them in the Ganges River. After his release, Michael Abrams started a new life as a volunteer advisor to members of the public at the Citizens Advice Bureau. A CAB spokesperson confirmed whilst Michael deeply regretted his actions. He had fully recovered from his illness and now had a chance to continue rebuilding his life by contributing to a local charity. Thank you for listening and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com Stay tuned till the end of this episode to hear a trailer for Criminology. It's a long-format podcast with the first season focusing on the investigation into the Zodiac and the second, which launches soon, covers the case of the original Night Stalker, otherwise known as the Golden State Killer. I really enjoyed the first season and it's a podcast I'd highly recommend for any fan of true crime, so please do check it out. To help support They Walk Among Us, please consider donating at patreon.com forward slash Us where you'll receive early access to ad-free episodes for just $3 a month. If you enjoyed the show, please also consider leaving a review on iTunes or your favourite podcast provider. You can follow us on Twitter at TWAU underscore podcast, or follow us on Instagram and Facebook Under They Walk Among Us podcast.
0: This is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morford. And we just want to let everybody know that our podcast, Criminology, is back for season two. We'll be covering
1: the case of the East Area Rapist Golden State Killer, responsible for over 50 rapes and a dozen murders throughout California.
3: And we're going to get into every detail of this predator that terrorized California from 1976 to 1986.
1: This predator needs to be identified.
3: So check out
0: Criminology. The first episode of season two comes out on February 24th.
1: You can find Criminology on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app.
2: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.